Welcome to another edition of John Talks. This week, I am joined by my buddy and the award-winning journalist, three-time author, David Russell. His new book, Fabulous to Futile and Flushing, A Year-by-Year History of the Mets, is available now on Amazon. David, third time's a charm, huh? Third, third book. This is, a, this is a pretty all-encompassing book. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. You know, I've always wondered, what's a podcast? So this is very exciting. Well, and we do all of these on Zooms, and you're the first one to, to like, dial in. So I can't see you now, so I don't – this is weird yeah, There's for a me. lot of wild stuff going on on my end. Yeah, no, definitely. You can only imagine. All right, so we're going to talk a lot about the history of the Mets. We were just talking about some other things that we wanted to touch upon, too. Uh, we're recording this now Friday afternoon on August the 28th. The Mets and Yankees are in the middle of a doubleheader. Uh, it's the bottom of the second. The Yankees are leading 2 nothing. Michael Waka, what a great signing that's been um for the Mets he's on the mound but but listen I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up we know that this has been the craziest year in the history of all years in terms of all walks of life um I don't think I need to tell anybody this uh the pandemic presidential election climate change and of course the Black Lives Matter movement uh, which was on full display Thursday night at City Field both the Mets and the Marlins held a 42 second moment of silence uh just before first pitch to honor Jackie Robinson and the Black Lives Matter movement. And after the silence, both teams walked off the field, thus boycotting the game. And since we're talking about the history of the Mets, um, it just didn't feel right to not bring this up. Uh, listen, we'll talk about the championships, the no-hitters, um, no trades hitter. that were, trades that weren't. Right, you're right. Yeah, just no-hitter. Um, but having said that, uh, I'll just say this. I support the movement. It was heartbreaking to see Dom Smith come to tears after Wednesday night's games. And, you know, he said, quote, it's been very emotional to kind of see this keep happening in wake of the, um, the shooting of Jacob Blake. It was a long day for me, and people still don't care. And, and he's saying that through tears. Uh, I obviously can't relate to Dom Smith um, growing up in Middle Village, Queens, but, but I do empathize with him. And I'll say this. Last night I was proud to be a Met. Uh, last night I was proud to be a Met fan. And to see the solidarity was amazing. I'm glad that it happened. Uh, it wasn't just a historic moment from a franchise point of view, but from an MLB standpoint. And I think this was the first time that we saw an active protest um, coming from baseball. So I'll just end on this. Black Lives Matter. I'm happy to see that the Mets and the Marlins stand as one. And uh, last night I was very proud um, to see what happened. It was very emotional. And this has been a crazy year. Um, David, I don't know if you want to add on any of that, but just, just, no, for that me. was a big moment in, uh, you know, I, I think Matt history and one that'll be remembered. I, I think it, it would have been interesting, you know, if there were 25,000 fans there, uh, you know, it, it, how that would have played out also. Cause I guess the, not that they wouldn't have boycotted, uh, but I guess it was easier to do with nobody in the stands. The, the only, uh, thing I could compare this to is in, in 68 after Robert Kennedy got shot, the Mets were in San Francisco and wanted to boycott. And uh, the, the Giants, it was supposed to be bat day. They weren't sure. And the Mets were actually willing to forfeit the game. And uh, the Giants said, you know what, we'll just reschedule it as a doubleheader. Uh, so they got the Giants on board. Uh, that's the only thing I could think of. Maybe if I, I go back, there was another one. But uh, I think this is really it. It really is unprecedented. Yeah, and it was unprecedented to see a display, you know? Like, right. it's not like It's not like the Mets and Giants in 68 took the field and had a moment of silence for Kennedy and then um, went their own ways. So, so this was different. Um, you know, the Mets have actually been tied to some pretty big moments in um, African-American history. Remember, they retired Jackie Robinson's number. That was announced at Shea Stadium. Uh, right. I remember Bill Clinton on the crutches. Um, so that mm -hmm. was a big moment. Right. Yeah. Um, Rachel Robinson, of course. Um, and Rachel Robinson, I, I mean, just about the history of her and, and how, how long she's been around. I think she's, she's I, I might be mistaken, she's upper 90s, right? Like yes, she's, yes. Is she 99? I feel, I don't know why I thought she was, she's 98. She, she just turned 98 in July, so, so God bless her for that. But anyway, yeah. okay, so let, let's get into the book. As okay, the well, I think by the way, four nothing now. Yeah, yeah, Clint Frazier just went deep the other way. Uh, yeah. Third home run of the year. Oh, good. Good good job for the Mets and uh, Michael Walker. Actually, you know what? Before we get to the book, 
Um, what are your <laughs> thoughts on this year with the Mets and, and how they're playing the 60-game schedule? Uh, any thoughts on the 2020 Mets? Well, I know there are people who aren't even taking the season seriously. I am because if you're going to play, you might as you know, if you're going to keep score, you might as well win, right? Uh, so I, I still think the winner will be valid. The, the one thing is I can't really, you know, bitch about the manager, complain about some guy in a slump this year. I think that's the one difference. 100%. I, can't nit, I can't nitpick on the stuff. I'm also going to say this. It's easier to manage the ball game this year. I'm not talking about, you know, clubhouse stuff and social protocols, social distancing protocols. But, like, from a, from a managing standpoint, everyone has the DH. Um, there are some extra roster spots on doubleheaders. I mean, it doesn't seem like Luis Rojas has it that much harder than if he would have had to deal with a regular National League schedule, you know? Right, oh, and by right. the way, Carlos Beltran was supposed to manage this team. Everyone forgets that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. I know he's your favorite player of all of time. Of course, yeah. No, 100%. Okay, so like we were saying uh, about the book, it's very dense, uh, and I like that. And, and there were some caveats <laughs> in it. No, I'm serious. And I like, I like that there are quizzes in there. There's little text boxes that were titled, Was He a Met? And I'll be frank with you, uh, I wasn't around in the 60s, so you could have put Joe Schmo in there, and it would have been like, oh, he was a Met? Yeah, all right, I guess he was a Met. <laughs> like you could have wrote the, the name Joe Schmo. Um, but there's a fabulous box, a futile box, um, take me through the inspiration for that, because I know that you're somebody who loves trivia and quizzes. So was that always on your mind when you were um, writing out and processing how to how to lay out the book? This is weird. Well, the uh, the publisher Walt Friedman helped me a lot with it. Um, th this is you know it's my third book. The first one was Tom Gamboa, My Life in Baseball, which was his autobiography, and really I transcribed it for him. But it was his words, and then Rod Gasper, Miracle Met the 1969 Met Outfielder was the same. So this was the first time uh, where I'm writing a book and I'm kind of on my own. I go, okay, well, it's up to me what goes in and out. And uh, it originally, I, I thought of a book as just kind of focusing on the opening day games. And then it branched out because, you know, Honey Bike could just go on Baseball Reference and see what happened on each opening day. Uh, but make it a little more fun. You know, there are a bunch of Mets history books out, but it's kind of been a while since somebody did the, you know, the season-by-season season recap like this. And so it kept branching out, and then it was Walt's idea, you know, maybe add some of the quizzes and uh, some of the boxes, like you say, the, you know, or, or you know, final resting place, you know, uh, you know, random Mets that would play for, you know, the, the tail end of their career, and you go, oh, yeah, he was a Met. And there's a lot of that in Met history, as you know. I was surprised. I forgot about Mickey Lolich. Oh, yes, yes. They traded Rusty Stobbs to get him, which, you know, I know the Seaver trade is kind of on another plane, but I almost think of Staub as like 1A for worst trades because he had the first ever 100 RBI season, and then they traded him for a fourth starter yeah. <laughs> who, who was there for one year. And that that's – it's not really. I mean, at least all the other bad trades they made, there were reasons. Like, I understand why Nolan Ryan was traded for Jim Fergozzi. You know, Ryan was disappointing in 71, and they needed a, you know, left side of the infield, you know, former all-star. Uh, you know, trading Amos Otis, they didn't know how good he was going to become, and they needed a third baseman in Joe Foy. But the Stubb for Lolich one really is tough to explain even at the time, and then even worse now. Yeah, 100%. And that's like a very Knicks-esque trade, right? Like, Lolich is on his last legs, just like the Knicks will get guys that were good like five years ago. Right. And then try right. and like, get something out of them. Right. They're, they're like, well, Lolich, you know, won the World Series eight years ago. So I guess we should get him now, even though he's thrown, you know, 10,000 innings in the major leagues. And yeah, then after one year, he was like, yeah, I don't want to be a Met anymore and left. And Rusty Staub was, you know, went on to have a good career and then went back to the Mets at least, which may have actually cost him a Hall of Fame spot, because I think if he stayed in the AL as a DH, he would have gotten a lot more at-bats and would have gotten the 3,000 hits. There's a lot of – there's there are a lot of players that, in the history of the Mets, um, you just scratch your head and wonder, how was he not a Hall of Famer? And I'm not saying that they were true Mets. Like, like for instance, Rusty Staub, when you think about him, you don't think about him as just a Met. You think about him with the Expos um, and other franchises as well. Like, like I don't, I don't think of him as as a true Met, but he certainly had a huge impact on the team. Keith Hernandez always talks about him and praises him, mm -hmm. um, and and you could just tell the impact that he had with those '80s Mets. 
Um, but yeah, you're hundred percent right with that. And that's, you know, 3000 is the magic number. Well, you get 3000 hits, you're in the hall of fame, no matter how much of a compiler you are like Craig Vigio. <laughs> well, he was, Staub was on a good path and then the Mets signed him back for the 81 season. He thought, okay, I'll play like first base and outfield. And then they brought in Dave Kingman and they made a few other moves and he really became just a pinch hitter for five years. And especially once they got Strawberry and, you know, Hernandez, especially Hernandez, then there was really no place for him other than the bench. A hundred percent. And you... then also, he, he, because of all his walks, he actually got on base 4,000 times. I, I don't know if down the line, maybe uh, some sabermetric people could put him in the Hall of Fame. I mean, maybe. Um, it seems like, yeah, you're going to have to hope that you find a bunch of his old friends that are on the Veterans Committee. Yeah, I don't think Staub will be in. I don't think Staub will be in. I do think Keith Hernandez should be in. That one I don't really understand. That's what, I was, that's what I was going to ask you about. Now, you look at his numbers, and he doesn't have Hall of Fame numbers that, that stand out, and you say, wow, this is a Hall of Famer. He was the best defensive first baseman of the generation. I feel like if you're the best at something, that should give you a nod, no? It, being the best defensive first baseman, you know, probably on the short list of the best ever. And – you know, the the MVP in 79 with the Cardinals, which is, you know, a big one to put on the resume. Two-time world champion. Yeah, I, I don't... Uh, was a major I, part of those championships, too. It wasn't like he was riding the coattails of, of any, no, no. any teams. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's a very confusing one. What, he hit 290-something for his career? Yeah. So I, I don't... It's one of those that I, I don't really understand why... It's not even like he got super close yeah, that's, that's the crazy thing. Um, and, and what's funny is that's the slippery slope of the Veterans Committee, right? Like, um, who just went in recently? Harold Baines. Right. Now you say, oh, well, Harold Baines is in. Keith Hernandez has to be in. Well, if Keith Hernandez is going to be in, then, then Dom Mattingly has to be in. And then it becomes the Hall of Very Good, unfortunately. You know, right. but I mean, Keith Hernandez is a better case than Harold Baines. I thought so. It's funny Baines getting in didn't bother me because I'm more bothered by the guys who were snubbed than the ones who get in. It was yeah. interesting, too. If it wasn't for, you know, Baines' career was so long, he was playing in the 81 and the 94 strike. And if it wasn't for the strikes, he might have gotten to 3,000 hits. Yeah, that's true, too. All right, I, so, I had no problem with Baines, but I, I just don't get why Hernandez isn't in. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I did like the Casey Stengel stories in the beginning uh, <laughs> of the Mets history, which were pretty cool. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but I know Casey Stengel went out to argue a call about a player uh, overrunning the bases. Uh, Mark Thornberry. Right, yeah, if you want to tell the story. Oh, yes, yes. Well, this is one of the, the classic, you know, early 60s Mets stories when they were losing 100 games every year and Thornberry's on third with the triple and the Cubs appeal and step on first and they call him out for missing first and Stengel runs out and his coach, Sally Hemis, goes, uh, forget it, Casey, he missed second too. <laughs> I wonder how many of those conversations still happen. Like, do you think, do you think uh, of, of listening to these managers now, do you feel like there's less personality out there on coaching staffs and managing uh, in management positions? Or do you think oh that they're God. just so it's... guarded? But do you think, but, but do you think, like, do you think Casey Stengel would have been this open and this loquacious in today's age with social media and, and the way that the media markets are? Or like, wh what do you think about that? I don't think uh, – I don't know if he could have been he, – he's an interesting one because he was such a character and such an outlier. But the stuff like even Bobby Valentine went through, you know, 20 years ago, it's like a completely different planet. Right. I mean, now they barely – you know, you're barely allowed to even say who's starting the next game, which I think hurts. I think the fans like having, uh, you know, managers uh, they can identify with people in the dugout yeah I think like, I think a lot of fans identify with the managers most of all because you can't really identify with the guy hitting 30 home runs a year but everybody right. sits on their couch and yells at the tv and plays manager so you could kind of identify with him so it's fun when the manager has a personality I could list probably a hundred people I grew up with that sound like Tommy Lasorda <laughs> you know I can't tell any. I can't I can't name anybody that reminds me of David Wright like who I know personally <laughs> partially because you don't know anything about david Wright, you know well that's that too <laughs> well but the, that's i think design. the worst one is is actually you know football used to have the most i mean at one time you'd have buddy ryan and mike ditka and bill parcells and jim mora and and all these guys and now it's you know everybody tries to take their cues from belichick and not say anything 
hundred percent. Um, one of the first chapters that stood out to me was the 1977 season. That's obviously, uh, the midnight massacre, the Mets trade, the franchise, Tom Seaver. Uh, and it's not like Seaver was on his last legs. I mean, he finished 21 and six with the Reds, uh, part of the big Reds machine threw a no hitter in his time in Cincinnati, got a standing ovation. The first time he came back, uh, facing the Mets, got a standing ovation at the all-star game at Yankee stadium that year. Um, in doing your research about the, the, the uncovering of the trade for Tom Seaver. Uh, and I know that it's been written about as well, but what sticks out to you that you feel that really wasn't covered enough about the, the Mets trading Tom Seaver to the Reds? Well, the interesting one is that they, they had been talking about trading Seaver at the beginning of the 76 season, and it would have been Seaver to the Dodgers for Don Sutton and one or two other players and different reports say different guys would have been thrown in, but the main part would have been Seaver for Sutton. And I wonder, it still would have been incredibly, incredibly, incredibly unpopular and would have ticked off every Mets fan. But I still wonder if you get another very good pitcher and some good position players, if that would have softened the blow instead of getting guys who, you know, okay, Doug Flynn won a gold glove and hit 220. And you know, Steve Henderson had some moments, but certainly wasn't as much as you think they could get back for Tom Seaver. And I always thought, you know, if that first trade went through, would it be... Uh, accepted maybe slightly better. Yeah. And, and, and also, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things we'll never know. And also maybe because it would have been before the season began, so people already would have been, you know, you go to opening day and Seaver's not there, and you maybe it helps you get used to it faster than him being traded in the middle of the season. Right. The other thing is when they traded him, you know, everybody goes, that's the day the franchise went down. They were already terrible in 77. They were horrendous. I mean, Joe Frazier got fired 45 games into the season. It was a really, really uh, terrible. I mean, even if they kept him, it would have been terrible. My favorite quote from that chapter was uh, Jerry Kuzman getting ticked off about um, – <laughs> get. oh, excuse me. No, wait. Is it uh, – I think, yeah, Jer- Jerry Kuzman said this. Working without any runs is starting to get to me after 10 years. Or was that Seaver? <laughs> that was Kuzman, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. And, and Jacob, that's, De, Jacob DeGrom must be going Crimea River. <laughs> right. Right, 100%. Well, you know what's funny is I'm looking at Seaver's stats, and after the 76 season, uh, he only won 20 games only once, and that was the 1977 season. And it's we know a miracle. It's well, well, 79, he helped the Reds win the division, and then 81, he finished second to Fernando Valenzuela in the Cy Young voting and may have actually – had a better case for it, but Fernando Mania, he just started off so right. hot. That was his year. And then he had some good years with the White Sox in 84 and 85. Right. My point, Dave, my point is that Seaver, even if he wasn't vintage Tom Seaver in the beginning of the, his career, he could still help your team. He was a good pitcher. It's funny. They, they, well, then they get him back in 83, and then they lost him again because they right. didn't protect him. And the White Sox took him. And what's funny is the, the talk was the Mets could have gotten him back in, down the stretch in 85. And Frank Cashman is going, I, I can get him. And Davey Johnson goes, oh, you just want to save face because you lost him a few years ago. No. Which is interesting that he could have had Tom Seaver and didn't want him. The, the rumor was that when they lost him, you know, they kept him unprotected. And then they said, oh, you know, the White Sox took him. We didn't think anybody would take him. There's kind of a theory that maybe they knew somebody would take him and Davey Johnson wanted to show a new team, yeah, I'm the boss, and that would have been tough for if Tom Seaver was in the clubhouse. Right. Okay, so let's get into that. Um, you and I have had many discussions off-air about this, so let's, let's talk about this. Davey Johnson is, is the best Mets manager in history, right? I think we could say that. In, in my opinion. Now, I know a lot of people would say Gil Hodges, and I, I don't really have an argument against him, obviously. All right, so, but either way, like, he's, he's top two, or he's 1A and 1B. At, at worst, he's top two. Right, correct. Um, having said that, if you talk to Davey Johnson, Davey Johnson's never been wrong about a baseball decision in his life, and he is, <laughs> he is the modern-day Joe McCarthy, or he is, he is the, the modern-day Joe Torre, um, or, you know, the, the 80s version of that. Having said that, what do you think about the power struggle that Johnson and Cashin had? It seemed as if the 86 team was Johnson's crew. Now, listen, I know that Cashin put that team together, so I'm not going to say that it was solely on Johnson. But it seemed like Johnson made it a point to say in 86, these are my guys. Um, I'm going to show you how to win. This is, it is what it is. And then after they win, 
Cashin basically gives him the pat on the back and says, okay, Skip, you did a good job. Now we're going to do it my way. And that actually hurt the organization. Now, listen, they should have won in 88. But, you know, 87, they were all banged up. Um, they made terrible trades after 86 and um, franchise-altering trades that, that, that kept them from being a dynasty. I don't know in a, in a bizarre way if you almost need this, uh, if you need some conflict, you know, constructive conflict to do well because Cashin and Davey Johnson didn't care for each other. And those were great times. Steve Phillips and Bobby Valentine didn't care for each other. And they had a pretty good run for a few years. And now, you know, the GM always picks whoever he wants as manager. And, you know, it's very safe. And yet <laughs> the results don't seem to be as good. So I, I don't know in a very, you know, obviously you'd rather get along with who you're working with. But for the Mets, it seems like they've had more success when there's uh, some struggle for whatever reason. Maybe because the players are better, but I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Actually, in the, um, in the press conference last night after the Met game, uh, Joel Sherman asked Brody Van Wagenen, um, you know, this is a franchise, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is a franchise that has embarrassing moments. What do you think it is about this franchise and why it has embarrassing moments? Well, I have a theory to that. It's because the media market and how big the media is. And the media loves the pettiness of the stories. So, for instance, right. if I say something, if I say like, oh, Dave Russell, you know, I can't stand him as a ball player. He's this, this, and that. Well, then they run to you. They get your quote. And then they run back to me. And then it's a frontline story, which was right. all generated uh, from the media as, you know, from the media. So, so I think that's why, like, I don't think the Mets do embarrassing things more than any other organization, but they're certainly covered more. And I just think it's always been that way. I don't know if, if that theory holds water or maybe the Mets are just more unfortunate than other franchises. What do you think Maybe when you it? share a city with the Yankees, also who haven't had a losing season in my lifetime, uh, it makes every, every single thing look like, oh, come on, you know, little brother and, you know, look at how they do it. Well, and they get a lot of rope too. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we had a normal season this year? You know, Judge was hurt, Stanton was hurt, um, Severino was hurt. Can you imagine if the Mets, before the season started, lost one of their rotation, you know, one of their top of the rotation guys and two outfielders? The media would have a field day with it, but because the Yankees, you know, don't don't seem to. Um, how can I put this? Uh, the Yankees don't make uh, the Yankees don't ruin uh, you know a one a one car funeral uh, right, as much right. as the Mets well, do. Well, there's that they have more rope because they win every year, and even with right. all the injuries, they keep winning. Right. So how much are you you know are you going to criticize them? Right, a hundred percent. But I feel like that that window in the '80s. Let's say the Mets win three at three in five years or five in seven years, um, if that was sustainable. Because that '86 team, I get that. Doc and Daryl were young, but for the most part, those were established guys. Those guys are pretty up there in their careers as well. Well, 85 would have been one of the best chances, but the Cardinals won 101 games. That's really, right. you know, when people say, why didn't the Mets win more? Well, it was because of the Cardinals. You know, in, in 85, they, they met at uh, Shea for three games, and the Mets win two out of three. They go into first place. It's thrilling. And then the Cardinals win 14 in a row. It's like, you know, what are you supposed to do when John Tudor pitches 10 shutouts in the second half of the season? Right. And then 80, 80, you know, 87, they won the fourth most games in baseball, even though Gooden was out for two months and Cone broke his finger and Aguilera was hurt and Fernandez was hurt and Darling missed the last three weeks. Uh, but the Cardinals were one of the three teams that won more. Pulling on my and notes. I, and actually, 87 was such, uh, you know, there was a lot of unhappiness in that clubhouse. And Frank Cashman at the end of the year said, fine, Davey Johnson will manage in 88 and then he's gone. Uh, and then I guess Kohler heads prevailed because... He came back for 89, even though he had to go through 88, you know, kind of as a lame duck. Can you imagine if that happened today? And I feel like we're going to say that a lot, but can you imagine <laughs> if the GM just straight up, not, not, I mean, not just the Mets, any franchise in any sport, if the GM comes out and says, um, this will be his last year. And, and I think, uh, who said that York, the owner of the 49ers for Jim Mora's last year. I mean, uh, John, John Harbaugh's last year. Oh, right, right. Although, I forget, did he come out and say it, or was it like an open secret that Harbaugh was going to make? Well, it was an open secret, and then I think it came out. Yeah, you know yeah. It, it might have been a sources thing, but it, it was definitely the owner who said it. It was like, he could win the Super Bowl this year. He's out. Right. <laughs> so, but yeah, you mentioned 87, too, the conflict. Um, you know, Daryl Strawberry, who, who was a superstar, but also very moody. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't doing himself any favors in the locker room. 
uh, picking fights with Wally Backman. Uh, Mookie Wilson, who was like a media darling back in the day, holds an impromptu press conference to request a trade. And then you know, David Johnson. And, and, and then my last thing, and then David Johnson blames the media for all the turmoil. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because David doesn't take any responsibility. No, and that was the first year of WFAN. Oh, man. So, so a lot. I think Davey Johnson probably had more on his plate than any other manager in terms of, you know, he was the first guy who had to deal with the media as it was changing. He had to deal with the media for, you know, for the first time. They weren't just writing about the games. I think that, that part was probably frustrating. But he was also smart because he also did his manager show with uh, Howie Rose. Right. And at first he was a little shy and then he realized like, oh, this is how I can just explain what I do to everybody. And he likes, he likes showing off how smart he is. Uh, and he has the record to back it up. So he, he really enjoyed having those shows to be like, hey, you, you were questioning me. Well, this is why. This is why I'm the Mets manager who won a World Series and you're sitting at home listening to me explain it. A hundred percent. Where, you know, Bud Harrelson then had the show and didn't like how he was being tough on him and he just, you know, didn't do the show. Well, Harrelson wouldn't go out to make the pitching changes, right? Because he was afraid of getting booed. Yeah, he sent Mel Stottlemyre out once to make a pitching change. You know, that's always the toughest thing when you get a beloved player who becomes a manager and then when they struggle. Like, I remember the Rangers wanted to do that a few years ago, um, the, the hockey Rangers. They wanted, uh, you know, they were toying with Mark Messier being the head coach. And it's like, if the Rangers struggle or don't win a cup because they were in win-now mode, like, like the fans are going to hate them. Right. And, well, that also made no sense because he had never coached. Well, 100%. And right. like, I mean, that was a really strange one. But, yeah. you know, Harrelson, I mean, it made sense in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, you think of the first 30 years of Mets history, he might be, uh, he might, you know, be the number one guy considering he was in uniform for 69 and 86. Right. Uh, but, and then, so he was a logical choice. He had a funny story in his book where I think Frank Cashin said, I don't just, you know, don't just make all your friends the coaches and he goes fine i'll round up my enemies <laughs> uh, and it was weird because they were struggling early in 1990 and then they hired harrelson and they won like 26 out of 33 or 27 out of 33 they were on fire and uh, finished second to pittsburgh and then 91 it just you know strawberry was gone vince coleman was in and uh, things just got ugly yeah um... they, they fired bud harrelson with a week to go in the season Right. Which you really know. I mean, that's a sign when you get fired in the final week that they couldn't even wait for Black Monday. Yeah. I think it was the day of the last home game because they had the home game and then they had a six-game road trip to end the season and they fired him before the last home game. And then Mike Hubbage took over. And So when you watch David Cohn strike out 19 Phillies on Mets Classics, that's one of Mike Hubbage's three wins as Mets manager. Yeah. Not just that. And then, uh, you know, David Cohn as well. Um, I think this is 92, right? Through 166 pitches and a six-hit shutout. Isn't that great? Is that... <laughs> and, and, now, and now they won't let Jacob deGrom go past like 120, even though, you know, yeah. the bullpen will blow it for him every time. What do you think about the deGrom-Gooden debate? It's pretty interesting, right? Like, I know in the 80s we were in a different world, and it seemed like because everybody only had four or five channels, on television um, that that like, okay, the Mets are on tonight, Doc's pitching. Everybody in New York is going to watch it, and now you've got so many options to watch, you know, entertainment, I think uh, the, politics, the thing, sports. But like, the thing working against DeGrom in that is one of the reasons that Gooden was must-watch TV, I think in 85 especially, is because he went 24-4. and four. Like, you, you knew that they were going to win – every time he took the mound. DeGrom, because he's probably going to get a no decision, it's more like an oddity. Right. It's almost like, well, I'm going to watch this guy pitch great, and then the other guy's going to pitch just as well, and, and then the bullpens will battle it out. Well, I'm all for this year being as wacky as it can be, and I'm on the uh, Jacob DeGrom winning the Cy Young with two wins campaign because <laughs> that, that will be a baseball record that will never be broken. I, I know that there might be another time, especially with the uh, – with the advanced bullpenning that you have now that a closer or a lockdown reliever could win the Cy Young and they won't, you know, they obviously won't win 20 games. They won't win 10 games. Um, they might only win one or two, but DeGrom might be the first and last pitcher to only have two wins as a starting pitcher and win the Cy Young. Well, I think that would be a very safe bet. Yeah. 
if it happens and it, it i mean the zra is like 1.80 now so it certainly could right i don't i don't you know it's funny it's the grom could be better than good when it's all over right yeah like now, it doesn't their, have you know, the longevity of being phenomenal it's going to be up, yeah. It's, it'll be interesting to see how long Degrom can do this. It's also, you know, Degrom came up so much older than Gooden did, but basically Gooden from '92 to '94 has met did nothing. And did you know that Jacob Degrom was a shortstop in college? Yes, yes, oh. I, I had heard that. Yeah. <laughs> and see, right. see, he and he's a good hitter, and now now he can't even hit. Now he, he can't, can't even, even he can't even give himself run support anymore. All right, let's talk our pet peeves because I think this is interesting. Um, what 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 is a bigger pet peeve uh, that Jacob Degrom was a shortstop in college? Hearing that story, that Michael Conforto played in uh, the Little League World Series, that Todd Frazier was from Tom's River, or every single lazy New York beat reporter Met Yankee trade every summer. It's amazing the Met Yankee trades. I don't understand. They go, could Jacob DeGrom be traded to the Yankees for Aaron Judge? And it's like, well, you know, I guess if DeGrom was traded, it could also be to one of the 28 teams that doesn't play in New York City. <laughs> it, it's very – I mean, it happens every year. You know, it's fun once or twice to be like, what if they made a trade? But that, that was one thing I didn't miss about there being no baseball. Like, oh, at least I don't have to read any of these fake trades. I mean, that – It's not that even d- like they were being discussed. It was just them totally, like, making it up out of thin air and then – photoshopping you know cinder garden yankees jersey that was the worst and i was working at mlb.com at the at the time so you mm-hmm. would hear all of these trade offers and this is how you can tell the difference between met fans and yankee fans met fans will hold on to their prospects forever forever i i, I probably still have a few friends that are fernando martinez defenders okay <laughs> they'll hold on to them forever meanwhile yankee fans will give away their prospects and make it seem like all of their prospects are the next core four. And it's like not right. every single prospect is Derek Jeter, Aaron Judge, Jorge Posada. Like, they're not that guy. So just hearing, oh, uh, you know, the, the Noah, uh, it'd be like Noah Syndergaard and Jacob DeGrom to the Yankees for, hear me out, Clint Frazier and Esteban Floreal. And that's it. Right. And that's it. <laughs> and at the time, it'd be just, and then it's like, all right, all right. I'll do you a favor. I'll throw in, I'll throw in Justice Sheffield. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> no, like unless there, you're there, there really is, there is no middle ground uh, between the way the Mets and Yankees fans treat prospects. Right. And right. It, it, it happens too. Like even uh, I like Brandon Nemo. I think he's good. I think he adds a lot to the team on base guy. But sometimes you know his name came up uh, possibly being traded for Real Muto a few years ago. And you have Mets fans like, oh, you can't trade Nimmo. And it's like, I like Brandon Nimmo, but, you know, you can trade him. Right. I mean, they were acting like this would have been, uh, you know, trading Seaver again. It's like, you know, you can calm <laughs> him down a little bit. Right. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, you never... know trades happen, right? Yeah. You guys do. come and go. Can you imagine trying to trade Lasting's Millage in 2005? No, no. <laughs> And they no, got, none they of got a mediocre. They got a mediocre catcher, and a, uh, Ryan Church was a good right fielder. He wasn't bad. He was fine. Yeah, last last batter at Chase Stadium. <laughs> right, right. But my point is, I, that, I also like, like how no team signed Barry Bonds that year. And it's like I'm sure somebody could. Like I'm sure the Mets could have used Barry Bonds to pinch hit every few innings. Well, every team could have every, used every few games. Well, that that was a non baseball decision. Yeah, clearly. That's, that's, that's clearly what that Speaking was. Speaking of the Yankees, how fun would it have been if they just trolled the rest of the league and signed him for $500,000 to oh, hit him between, like, Giambi and A-Rod with, with the 314 down the line? See, I still feel like if George was around, then oh, that, that would have been possible. Oh, oh, my God. He would have flew out to San Francisco himself. Yeah, here you go. Yeah. Here, you well, want 500000 I'll even give you a million. Here you go. No, you know what? He would have overpaid for him. Oh, and especially it was a year after the Red Sox won the World Series. Oh, yeah. So he really would have been like, yeah, I can't have this. Tampa Bay is in first place somehow. Like, please, Barry, get here. Last year at Yankee Stadium. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the house that Ruth built is closing. Why not bring in, you know, uh, the new the great home run, home run hitter? Right, yeah. The new home run king. All right, what was another year that I liked? Um, so we talked about 92. Okay, then we start to get into my ge- our generation. And my favorite team of all time, favorite Met memory, Favorite Met season, 
2009. I think that's one of the craziest <laughs> years in Mets history that is so undocumented, and that needs to be – I'm going to write a book about it or make a 30 for 30 because that season's phenomenal, and you've got so much to work with there. And just, you know, you went through it year by year. Can you think of a more crazy, lopsided, injury-prone, disappointing year than 2009? Well, I can't think of a more disappointing one. Uh, what I love is, I'm cutting to the end, but the, the final indignity of that season is, you know, they lose game seven in 06. They lose game 162 at home in 07. They lose game 162 at home in 08. And then when they're like 67 and 92, they win the last three games of the year at home. <laughs> Sweep the Astros. <laughs> Figueroa with the shutout. And right. I, I thought, boy, that's really the final indignity. Like now you win. Oh, man. I mean, you've Carlos got... Del, Carlos Delgado, you know, gets injured in mid-May and just never comes back. That was, that was, that was a lot of the cases. Uh, Jose Reyes, like that too. Jose Reyes was, was supposed to be day-to-day. But I'm going to pull this... I got to pull the chapter up. Um, <laughs> because the best part about it, I forgot how awesome of a quote Jerry Manuel was. I always knew he was good, but then I'm reading some of the quotes of that year. And Especially it was when you have 10 more years of, you know, the, the managers getting a little, you know, blander. Right, exactly. Although Kyle Collins was, wasn't a bad quote guy, I should say. No, no, but, but I mean, Jerry, Jerry Collins never called good pitching outings gangster. No, he did no. not. Not that and, I remember. And the way that he argued with the – like, I wish – you know, you got the ass in the jackpot um, uh, sound clip for Terry Collins. Right. I would have loved to hear what Jerry Manuel was saying. Because remember, he used to point his fingers, and it was a whole fluid body motion when he would it's argue. Too bad with John somebody. Boy wasn't around uh, ten years ago. Oh man, like those are the clips you have to look up. Yeah. Jerry Manuel <laughs> arguing, and but, and no replay, so you could just argue as long as you wanted. Right, a hundred percent was great. Uh, yeah, I remember because I bought I bought a ticket plan that year to to go to opening day, which you know was wonderful that Jody Garrett hits the first home run in baseball in Major League Baseball history at at City Field. Yeah, um, as the first batter, yeah. Right, as the first batter. Uh, we're not going to count St. John's Georgetown. Um, no, no. As, as the exhibition. <laughs> but, yeah, so that happens. Uh, Pedro Feliciano balks. Um, and, and if Pedro Feliciano wanted to, he probably could have pitched 162 games because uh, he seemed to pitch every single game. Uh, Manuel certainly tried. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. They, 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 <laughs> it, it's weird that the Yankees signed him and then his arm just, you know, collapsed. Who could have seen that coming? Yeah, that's like the first that that was one of the first signings that Cashman made that just turned out to be a complete flop, you know, before Jacoby Ellsbury. Well, it was Marquette just weird. It was, well, it wasn't even a flop. It was just I really never pitched for them because <laughs> right. All the maybe the Mets knew that his arm was shredded, and they were like, "All right, yeah, we're not going to bring you back." They definitely had to know. But okay, so I have the I have the manual quotes. So this is about Oliver Perez, who is the only remaining active player from the NL East champion two thousand six Mets. <laughs> And, and so, um, so the, team, the team is obviously feuding with Perez, who doesn't want to go to the bullpen. And then Jerry right. Manuel. So Jerry Manuel moves into the bullpen. And then he says, quote, well, he won't be the first guy I call. There's no question about that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is wonderful. Um, then, then Daniel Murphy, poor Daniel Murphy, who didn't have a position. And the Mets would just throw him out everywhere. Like, they knew he could hit, but they knew he couldn't play uh, in the outfield. But he had nowhere to play in the infield either. Like, he wasn't going to play a third base with David Wright. He wasn't going to play a first with Carlos Delgado until he got hurt. You know, so he had to practice the outfield in spring training. You know, he wasn't going to play short for the Jose Reyes. And Luis yeah. Castillo, I believe, was still the opening day. Uh, and there was the one year Brad Emus was the opening day second baseman. That is right. And he was on the all-star ballot because of that. That's right. Did you but vote any- for him? So, I, uh, I did. I did. Cause of course he did. It was too good not to. But anyway, so yeah, so, so here's the idea of Murphy, um, you know, playing the field. And Jerry Manuel goes, quote, I'm scared to death. If, if he can't catch it out there, how's he going to catch it in here? Can you imagine? <laughs> like, I get that that can be like an off-the-record comment. But come on. That, that is a far cry from Mickey Calloway's uh, I'm going to care about them like they've never been cared about before opening line. Every time I every time I think of Vicky Calloway, I think of he battled, he battled, he battled, he battled, he battled. Oh, we're just battling out there. Yeah. Well, they did battle a lot. 
They did, yeah. Who would have known that the only thing you had to do to uh, tick off Terry Cal- uh, to tick off Mickey Calloway was to just say, "All right, I'll see you tomorrow." <laughs> I don't know those what are the I, magic what words. I love, what I love is that the last week of <laughs> last season when they announced they were going to retire Jerry Kuzman's number, and and they made Calloway switch from like thirty six to twenty six for a week and then fired him. <laughs> and it's like, what was what was the point of that? And he goes, Kevin Pulaski. That's uh, he was honoring the great Kevin Pulaski. And this That's is a right. good quote. This is another good quote um, from Alex Cora, future future manager, with uh, getting ready for his soundbite. He said, uh, "This is about the Mets defense right now. I think we're the worst defensive team in the league," <laughs> which was wonderful. Uh, it, it, you really appreciate uh, just the the bluntness. You know. Another thing, too, I don't think any other fan base, I'm sure there's one person out there, but like, like think of like the Brewers fan base. Do they know who their vice president of, for player development is? Probably not. No, but of course, with the Mets in 2009, it was Tony Bernazard. That's right. We can never forget. We can. <laughs> I mean, that's what an incredible year. Um, what an absolutely incredible year. And then, uh, and then, well, you know, I, I should correct myself. I said the final indignity was winning the last three games. I think the final final indignity was having a Yankees Phillies World Series. Yeah, that's the final indignity. And my my favorite thing I've know we've talked about this is it ended November fourth, the World Series Game Six at Yankee Stadium. Originally, there was supposed to be a United Football League game that night at Citi Field uh, with the New York Sentinels, and uh, and then they moved it to Hofstra. And I thought, wouldn't it have been great if the Yankees won the World Series against the Phillies and across town the, the Sentinels of the UFL are playing at City Field? <laughs> like just how like pathetic that would have been. Right. Um, which game did you like more? Uh, the, Louis, the Luis Castillo drop pop-up game or the game-ending triple play? Uh, you, you know, it's interesting, the triple play – that whole game is Oliver Perez giving up six runs in the first inning and being taken out in the middle of pitching to Pedro Martinez. <laughs> and they're down 6 nothing in the first inning. Then they come back and make it, you know, now it's 9-7 with two on and nobody out. And then they line into a, a triple play. At least the Met-Yankee one was like a back-and-forth game. And, but I and- love the, the idea of just – oh, and Pedro Martinez was pitching for the Phillies. Right. And so you have all of that. The fact that they actually got back in the game – and just to line into a triple play because Jerry Manuel started the runners, uh, which he didn't have to. And, and if he didn't, Frank Gore would have just had like an RBI single. Right. It would have kept the line moving and, you but know, instead, it would have been a cool just, comeback. Instead, Eric Brunlett is like, oh, it's right to me. By the way, Brunlett, who made two errors on the last two balls in play. Yeah, well, I guess he made up for it. Well, he definitely did. He didn't have much to do. All he had to do was catch the line driver. The rest was, the rest was uh, easy for him. That's right. You know, you, you know, I can't get off the point now. You, you brought up how much more interesting these quotes used to be. <laughs> oh, they're, they're phenomenal. I mean, now, now Jacob deGrom can't even, like, say he's bothered by the fact that he has, like, you know, 20 wins in his career when he should have, like, 140. Who do you think in, in all your research that you've had, um, who would you rank as the best quotes? Like, if you had to have your best three, three quotes from Mets history. Ooh. You could, well, you, could, you, could, you could divide it. So you could go managers, top three, and players, top three. Yeah, well, I, I'm trying to – I mean, Bobby V was all – I mean, Bobby V was kind of on uh, another level. Uh, David Cohn was a good, honest one. There was one he had. They were talking about how the infield defense was terrible. And this is some heading into the year. And, you know, usually they go, yeah, you know, you just got to pitch your game or whatever. And, and David Cohn goes – yeah, there's concern, and it'd be sort of, you know, it would be kind of ridiculous to pretend otherwise. And it's like, oh, okay then. <laughs> I should look this up. Hold on. Oh, I forgot how good this was. I kind of, uh, he goes, the questions about the defense are legitimate. It's what we've all talked about among ourselves for more than a month. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine like a bunch of pitchers' meetings. It's like, guys, you better rack up your strikeouts or. Well, you're done. Yeah, yeah. Those pitcher meetings must have just been him and like John Franco and the other guys just trashing the infielders. All right, so you got Bobby V. Oh, uh, Dallas Green is probably another great one. Not that the players liked him at all, but no. he was basically 
I mean, he would just shred them on a daily basis. Because I guess when you manage Pete Rose and Mike Schmidt and Steve Carlton and then start managing the Mets of the mid-90s, it's a disappointment. But he was a funny one. And actually, it was one of his quotes I kind of uh, hastened his firing because it was one of the Generation K guys got kicked around and he goes, they really shouldn't be here yet. They're not ready. Uh, which wasn't even a criticism of them. He was just saying they were rushed up too much, right. but they didn't like that. He was that critical, and then Bobby V came in. But Dallas Green was another one. I mean, he he would just, I mean, he just trashed them at every chance he got, and they gave him a lot of chances. Yeah. Well, I remember reading in Jeff Perlman's book that Keith Hernandez was the original uh, one player says, or you know, uh, an unnamed <laughs> player, because he was a notorious leaker. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of more of the quotes that uh, stand out. It's, it's tougher with the recent guys. It's certainly, right. you know, none of the recent guys. One of the things that I'm going to give you crap for, too, is we always talk about this. Um, in 2011, Angel Pagan hits the walk-off home run uh, against the Cardinals oh, on yes. July 20th. And that game was only special because – and that game's only on Mets Classics because, one, it's of the past decade, but, two, because Gary, Keith, and Ron were in the Pepsi porch. Like, that game meant nothing. And you made it as the number two highlight of the year? It, it's a very uh, – well, <laughs> that's what happens when you go 77 and 85 and have your third losing season in a row. I mean, how was Jose Reyes not number one? And then, I don't know, I'm nitpicking here. Well, no, because it's not that it's on Mets Classics. It's on Mets Classics at least once a week. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it was on the other day, and I was thinking, and, and I was thinking, like, God, I, if I ever actually watch this game beginning to end, considering it's on, you know, fifty times a year. I was there, and I still haven't watched the replay. Right. <laughs> well, you, you don't want it to soil the memory. Right. Exactly. I mean, it was cool. I believe Lucas Duda hit a hit a game tying home run, like late in that game. Okay. Maybe that was another game I went to. Who knows? <laughs> but but well, I have to watch. Yeah, no, I, I do have to watch. What you think of? What you think of the programming on SNY in terms of the old Met games during the quarantine? Like, I thought it was cool to see the '86 LCS and the '86 World Series '69, and then they had 2015 over again, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that was fun. I was I was glad they did. I, I liked the, they have the 2000 playoff series. Yeah. You know, they showed some of the wins against the Giants. Yeah, they did a good job with that. Because for, for a long time, it seems like they don't really play anything that's, that wasn't on SNY. And that's got to be – right. And that's probably a TV contract thing. But it's just so frustrating when you see on Yes, you know, like the, it's Game 7 of the 2003 ALCS. Like the right, Yankees or it's like, oh, look, game. It's, it's Game 6 of the 1978 World Series right. on NBC and not the Yes Network. But, right. yeah, it's on anyway. 100%. Therefore, the only thing frustrating about yes is sometimes they'll play the uh, the radio announcers instead of you know Fox or whoever, and it's a little distracting if they're not talking about the same thing that's on the screen. Right. Well, you know what? Yeah. I'll give I'll give it this for SNY. They did a good job. Game four of 2015 uh, NLCS that they had the radio call for it. Right. Right. I noticed that. Yeah. So that that was pretty awesome. Yeah, you get Howie's call. Right. I had to uh, I had to stop watching. So. So that's what SNY did. They did for one week. It was a 69 World Series. Another week was 86 World Series, 86 NLCS. Uh, and then 2015, they had the LDS and the LCS. Obviously, no World Series games. But, you know, I, 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 2015 was, was, in all seriousness, one of my favorite years. Uh, sure. It's not my favorite year because 2009 will always be for a comedic standpoint. <laughs> uh, but having said that, like, I watch how they just rip-rolled through the Cubs and made it seem so easy. And then, like, I got so sad after game four, watching them win, celebrate on the field, and just knowing that was the best it got. Like, there should have been one more celebration, and it wasn't there. The thing that amazes me about the Cubs series is going into that, I go, I don't know who's going to win this, but either way, this is going at least six or seven. Right. And may maybe, maybe it would be a five-game series if, you know, one team wins, like, three really close games. But I thought it was going to be – you know, game six was going to be on like a Saturday afternoon at City Field. I go, that's going to be insane. One of those teams is going to be up 3-2 right. afternoon baseball. And, and the Mets never even trailed in the series. 
No, it was incredible. Daniel Murphy had a home run every game, and they, they kept pitching to him for some reason. <laughs> yeah, right. I know intentional <laughs> walks are supposed to be bad, according to analytics, but I don't think letting the same guy hit a home run against you every game is, is good, according to analytics. You know what, though? He would hit him early. Like, you're not going to intentionally walk Murphy, uh, you know, the first no, that's first true. at game one. Well, his, his last one was in the eighth inning, though. That's true. But they were already out of it. But, yeah, no, that was that was incredible. Would you say – what would you rank as as some of the the worst non resignings in Mets history? Because Daniel Murphy has to be one. Uh, Ray Knight after '86 is is bad. Um, what do you think? Well, what I like is uh, anybody who wins an MVP, like Ray Knight was World Series MVP, so they let him go. Mike Hampton was NLCS MVP. He didn't come back. Murphy didn't come back. Yeah, it, it's it's tough to uh, not pick Murphy. See, I can't blame them for Hampton because. Colorado just offered him so much money. Well, and they've, they had a better school system. That's right. So for those two reasons, I can't uh, blame the Mets. And, and even Ray Knight, is, he should have been brought back. But he was getting older, and, you know, Howard Johnson had a 30-30 season at third base. So it's not exactly like he was the reason that they didn't win in 87 or 88. So I think, I think when you kind of go process of elimination, the Murphy one, uh, not bringing him back certainly hurt and then you know 2016 i mean they probably won the division if he's on the mets instead of the nationals right he was an mvp candidate he finished second in the mvp voting so what happens in that season if they won the division because then they get to miss the wild card game against Bumgarner. i don't think they go back i mean i don't think they go back to the world series but they i don't, the pitching I don't, to I don't do think it. they beat the cubs but they they gave the cubs some trouble with their pitching right because i remember the, the cubs of came back year. The Cubs came back to City Field, uh, I think it was June of 2016, and that's where the Mets just swept them, and Wilmer Flores had the six-hit game. Mm-hmm. Would have been well, an interesting matchup, yeah. And then what was – it was – I think it was at Wrigley Field. I was listening to the game because I was living in Massachusetts at the time in the summer, and it was a game-ending double play, right? Remember that? I think Chris Bryant grounded into the game-ending double play. It started by Jose Reyes. Oh, uh, yes. I mean, that game was – yeah, I mean, the, the Cubs had all the pressure in the world on their shoulders, um, and they would be playing a team that just ran circles around them the year before. Maybe, you know, they would have given them a run for their money. I don't think it would have been a sweep. No, no, I think the, I, I think the Mets had some uh, matchup problems for the Cubs. Yeah, and it was a um, – it was, it was just the matchup you didn't want, and while it, it, it stung that the Mets didn't win the wild card game, like that team was running on fumes. And they were, they were going against the best postseason pitcher of the generation who just outdueled them. Like, they, they, just, they just got outdueled. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so there's that. Um, what were some things uh, – and, and, and I'll give an example, but what were some things that you did some research on and you said, wow, how did this thing not happen or how did this happen? And I know that that's very vague. So what I mean is, <laughs> like, in, in uh, 1988 – Daryl Strawberry should have hands down been the MVP. How does Kirk Gibson win the MVP in 1988? Uh, you know, it's supposed to be a regular season award. His numbers don't compare. Right, so can't he wasn't an all-star. LCS. Right. Uh, I, the, the two things I could think are, one, it was Gibson's first year with the Dodgers, and they went from a 73-win team to a 94-win team that won the division, and he was a big part of that, and it was also the attitude change. So you have the narrative. And I think also the fact Kevin McReynolds finished third in the MVP voting and maybe voters felt, well, if, you, if the Mets didn't have strawberry, they still would have had McReynolds. But if Gibson wasn't there, the Dodgers really would have, uh, you know, just been a mediocre team. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of the arguments, but certainly I think uh, strawberry should have won it with 39 homers and everything he did that year. And you said you had another one? Uh. Well, Strawberry is the big one. It's too bad Piazza didn't win in 2000 because if the season was five months, he would have won. But then right. the catching caught up with him in September. He went into a slump. And then Bonds and Kent finished ahead of him, which kind of negates my point that I just made about Strawberry and McReynolds canceling each other out because somehow Bonds and Kent finished ahead of Piazza. The one that annoys me is that Bobby Valentine didn't win manager of the year. Right. Uh, he should have won it in 97 when they won 88 games, they didn't have one player in the top 10 of the MVP voting. They didn't have one pitcher in the top 10 of the Cy Young voting. 
I mean, there's really, you know, Dusty Baker had Barry Bonds and won two more games and won manager of the year. Okay. And you could have made the argument for 99, too, for Bobby V. Yeah, 99 was a a wild one. And then, really, I think 2000, uh, you know, winning 94 games. And, again, Dusty Baker won. So, so Dusty Baker had Bonds and Kent. He had number one and two in the MVP voting. And they gave it to him again. And then Bobby Valentine managed circles around him in the division series. What was the story with Jeff Kent? And why didn't the Mets prioritize keeping Kent? who is, in my opinion, a Hall of Famer. Uh, well, I think he's a Hall of Famer, too. Uh, I'm not, you know, I don't know if it was the attitude thing. He also didn't play as well as he did with the Giants with the Mets. And, of course, they could get Carlos Bayerga, so how could you pass that up? <laughs> right. You talk about being part of trades, the fact that they trade Cone for Kent and then Kent for Bayerga, that's an interesting, uh, you know, lineage. Oh, man. I don't know about – Kent is one of those weird – I don't know. You can tell me what you think. Is there any period of Mets history less covered than the mid-'90s? Because even the early 60s, they were terrible, but everybody – I mean, they're Right, everyone knows them. I mean, my argument would be the late-'70s. I know, but but even that still gets all the hate of, you know, Grant right. Toome and 77-83. They traded Seaver and everybody. Like, 91 – like – you know, the Seaver trade takes off like six or seven years of losing, but nobody even talks about like 91 through 96. That's true. Yeah, I think... I mean, I, people, still, people still talk about Joe Torre as Met manager. Right. And I think in 20 years, I don't think people are going to talk about the 2011 to 2014 Mets either. You know, like they might be in that same vein as the early 90s Mets, but you're right. Yeah, I, I haven't really thought about it like that, but I'll go... I'll go with that. Because, because when I was doing the research, I was looking at all this early 90s stuff, and I go, geez, I, you know, of all the, the names on the Mets, I probably know the fewest from the mid-90s, even though it was kind of right before I started following them. And there was a book written on them, The Worst Team Money Could Buy. That's right, yeah. That was about, uh, about 92. I mean, at least 92 has that infamy. But then, like, 94, maybe because of the strike, 94, but 95, uh, weird seasons. Although you know, 90, 94, I have to give a lot of credit to because they lost 103 games a year before and then were basically a 500 team when the strike hit. So that's, that's some improvement. That's funny because I thought the Montreal Expos were the only team that played in 1994. Well, you would think according to uh, all the fans who say – I also like how because they were in first place on August 12th, everybody assumes they would have won the World Series. Right. They automatically would have had favorable matchups. Right. Yeah, that's how it works. Right, sure, it was the first year of the wild card, and, you know, a team we might not even be thinking of could have won the World Series. Maybe it would have been the Rangers, who were actually 10 games under five hundred, but in first place in the AL West when the strike hit. That's true. But everybody just assumes it would have been exposed Yankees. Yep. Yeah, that, that, is a, yeah, that is a good point. Yeah, everybody just assumes they would have won. Yeah. Oh, man, <laughs> what a shame. What a... <laughs> Well, maybe baseball could go back to Montreal one day and they can pack those dedicated 6,000 fans in again. That's the thing. I think, like, if, if they go back to Montreal, it'll be good early on. But you better have, like, a Vegas Golden Knight situation where you have an owner that'll just pour in a lot of money and the fans will show up and they get the expansion draft. Like, that's, that's what you have to hope it would be, right? And, and even then, after a while, once the Expos or whatever they're going to be called start to lose again, nobody's going to show up. Like, you already did it. Been there, done that. You don't have another major market like Washington, D.C. at your disposal. I think it was Peter Gammon said the story that he was going to some game in uh, 2004 or somewhere in that period. And keep in mind, the Expos had been around for 35 years. And Gammon goes, yeah, uh, to the baseball game. And uh, the the cab driver goes, we have a baseball team? Yeah. I also like the first and last Expos game was at Chase Stadium. Yeah. Yeah, Bill Burr, Bill Burr had a similar story, too, to uh, Peter Gammons, because he used to talk about how he would schedule all of his tour dates around Major League Stadiums, and he wants to see the football, baseball, all that stuff. So he booked a gig in Montreal, or I think he booked a gig in Buffalo, but the Expos were in town, so he drove up. And when he was crossing the border, uh, the Mountie said to him, <laughs> oh, what are you coming up here for? He goes, oh, I want to go to an Expos game. He's like, why? Why, why, why would you want to do that? <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I yeah, mean, maybe, maybe if Tampa Bay split games there, then they could play in front of two buddy and you know nobody in two different that countries. That is the du- that is the dumbest idea ever. <laughs> like that really is. I know baseball has been ahead of the curve in a lot of areas when you look at the history of the leagues, but over these last four or five years, it's just been really tough, and they've really been behind the eight ball. Uh, and that would just be probably one of the worst ideas. That would be almost as bad as having 16 teams in the playoffs. Um, <laughs> I, I just feel like baseball should market itself as the marathon, and you have it every day, and the top 10 teams make the playoffs. You know, like it's right. a reward to clinch a playoff spot. Right. I, I, I also – part of it is the, uh, the, the shortened season because the NFL did this one year, which – I, I was surprised when they announced there were 16 teams, nobody made the connection that in 82 there was an NFL strike and there was only a nine-game season. And there were 16 playoff teams that year. Jeez. There were a ton of – and the NFL didn't have 32 teams yet either. It was a smaller league, and, and 16 of them made the playoffs. But no, no, I was surprised nobody really made that connection. You know, SMY is now showing uh, images of the Mayor's Cup games between the Mets and the Yankees um, back in the day. And, you know, I don't know, because obviously with interleague play now and and players aren't going to want to play after the season ends. Like, I I don't know what more baseball can do to drum up interest instead of marketing their own players. And it seems like we're going to a world now where, like the NBA, that seems to be the model to follow. But I I don't know. What what do you think about it? Because – because, listen, baseball will always be my favorite sport, but I don't know what more – like, I think the game is fine. I like, I like having no DH. I like having extra inning games. They're not as frequent as everyone makes it out to be. If you want to do that – how many inter- games go past, like, 12 innings? Well, see, here's the thing. If, if, if you want to do that international tiebreaker and put a runner on second, then do it after the 12th inning. To do it in the right, 10th right. inning in a non-pandemic year is ludicrous. M- most of the games end in 10 innings anyway. Right. Many extra inning games, they'll make it to 11. Because the teams already use their best pitchers for the night. You know, I, I think right, like right. one way that you can improve it, which obviously it's not going to draw fan interest, but what you do is, you know, let's say your team plays past 12 innings. Well, then you could add another roster spot for a pitcher. You know, like that, that, that could be a thing. That you right, add right. Pitch. But yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think? I don't know because I love baseball, obviously, having written three books about it. It wasn't out of spite. It's because I love <laughs> baseball. Uh, but if I was trying to get into it now for the first time, I don't think there's any way I could. Right. I couldn't believe how many Mets games this year have been over three and a half hours. The, the Red Sox come in, and there's like a boring 4-2-9 inning game, and it was three oh. hours and 40 minutes. And I'm going, for what? Well, what takes three hours and 40 minutes? That's the DH. That's, I mean, the way that you really slow down a game is you slow down the commercial time. Like, that's, that's really what it is. Um, but you're not going to take money out of the pockets of, the, of these owners. And I don't blame them for, for not wanting to do that. But you can't say, you know, you know what it is, Dave? Like, like I didn't realize how much time the intentional walk um, really that's took right. up. You know, so I'm glad that they got rid of that. Of course. Thank um, God. I didn't realize how much a pitcher hitting slowed down the game. So I'm <laughs> glad they got rid of that. I do like the three batter minimum. I didn't think I would like it at first, but I do like it because it still adds strategy. Like a manager, right? Has right, to know. it's the new strategy. Right. So I'm the okay problem is that. when the first guy throws four balls in a row, you realize, well, now he has to throw eight more, and then we can take him out. There should be an exception. Like if your name is Edwin Diaz, you should, you know, it should be a case by case thing. Because <laughs> when you when you put the first three guys on, and then right. the next pitcher comes in and gives up a hit or a sack fly or you know, walks a hitter. To lose the game. I also like that the guy who makes the uh, last out of like the ninth inning is on second base in the tenth. Yeah, I. You know what's so, funny? So you, so you, so you could have like a guy like striking out and then like scoring the winning run the next inning. Yeah, you know, if I'm the Mets, if I'm Luis Rojas, um, and the first two guys get out and like you have a weak hitting hitter come up, just have Billy Hamilton go up there, strike out, and then he begins at second base the next inning. Like I'm surprised I haven't seen more managers do that. I guess they can't just admit. <laughs> he he yeah. just, just got to tell Billy Hamilton, look, we, we know you're going to make an out. Who was it? It was Charlie Finley, right, that, that thought about having a specialized runner? Well, yeah, Herb Washington, the, uh, right. the pinch runner, the designated runner, who never hit in the game. And, uh, 
And then his big moment, he pinch ran in the World Series and was picked off. Yeah, well, there you go. Maybe you shouldn't waste a roster spot on a guy who can't pitch or hit or throw. Yeah. Yeah, shades of Colton Wong. All <laughs> right, man. Um, any, <laughs> anything else uh, about the book uh, that, that, that we didn't touch upon or Mets history? No, I think he did a good job of covering it. We talked so many times about the Mets of all the teams. They're, they're also a good team to do a book on because yeah. they've been around just long enough where there's a lot in, you know, it would be tough to do one of these about the Diamondbacks or Rockies, but it's not the Cardinals or Yankees either. I think 60 years or so is a, a good time to look back. This is my biased opinion. I think the Mets are the most interesting team to look back on. And not just for – like, if you want to cover or read about winning teams, obviously you read about the Yankees, the Cardinals, the Red Sox, um, the more recent Red Sox. But it's just so interesting, the tales uh, of the Mets, that I can't think of a team that was so so interesting that didn't win as much. Maybe the Cubs. You know, the Cubs have had some some crazy things happen with them over the years, and they've had some funny stories. Right. Um, the Cubs have also had so much longer for it to be ingrained. Right. Exactly. Um, like, like Houston came around in 1962 and until five years ago, nobody really cared about them. Right. And nobody knew anything about them. Same thing with the Rangers, like those teams in Texas, nobody knows anything about them. I'm sorry. Like outside of Rangers and Astros fans, right. Outside knows. of like 2010 and 11, it's like, and, and Nolan Ryan punching Robin Ventura. It's like, who are the Texas Rangers? <laughs> my, my Texas Rangers moments growing up are just learning about the history of the, of the Rangers is yeah. Nolan Ryan and Robin Ventura. And then the ball going off Jose Canseco's head for a home run. Yeah. Oh, and also the Rangers like making the playoffs and just like getting shut out by the Yankees every game year after year. Right. Yeah. It's like we scored a thousand runs. Okay, David Cohn's going to shut us out now. Right. That's the one thing that I'm interested to see with the new playoff format um, when it when it eventually gets uh, shoved into the owners' laps about choosing a playoff opponent. Like you know the the, the Minnesota Twins can go 162 and 0, and like the Yankees can be like 81 and 81, and you know. Yeah that, like, the, the Twins will not pick the Yankees. <laughs> or it'll be the opposite. Bl- <laughs> like, the Yankees will pick the Twins, even if the Twins are the second-best team in the league. Right, right, because they know it's an automatic win. <laughs> I, I can't believe how silly that is. Also, you get to pick your opponent. I mean, somebody really watches the World Series and go, yeah, but you know what? I wish it was more like the Bachelor. What if they get to pick? You got Brian you know, Cashman you know, with you know roses. Baseball fans want more reality TV. It's like, yeah. what's wrong with you? We didn't, nobody, nobody wants this. And they just alienate all the real fans just to win over people who don't care about their game anyway. You know, and I thought the wild card game was, was phenomenal. Like, I thought the concept of having a one-game playoff for the wild card was great because now you actually give the division winners incentive to win. I mean, how well, many years the, did we the Yankees watch? And- the Yankees and Rays did that 10 years ago when they were meeting in the final week of the season and they were both resting everybody because they right. knew the winner had to face Cliff Floy. Right. And then baseball was like, well, that's, that's not good when teams are trying not to win the division. Right. It was always, it was always the American League East that, that ruined everything for the right. rest of baseball. <laughs> or, you know, would cause the shakeups. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. But all right, Dave, it was good talking to you. The book is called Fabulous to Futile in Flushing, a year-by-year history of the Mets. Three-time author, award-winning journalist, David Russell for the Queens Chronicle. Uh, David, thank you for the time. Thank you.